Part Four of By the Turtles of Tasman by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Part Four. Like daughter, like father, Tom too had been irresistible. All the world still called to him, and strange men came from time to time with its messages never had there been such visitors to the travers home some came with the reminiscent roll of the sea in their gait others were black-browed ruffians still others were fever-burnt and sallow and about all of them was something bizarre and outlandish their talk was likewise bizarre and outlandish of things to frederick unguessed and undreamed though he recognized the men for what they were soldiers of fortune adventurers freelances of the world but the big patent thing was the love and loyalty they bore their leader they named him variously black tom blondine husky travers malamute tom swiftwater tom but most of all he was captain tom their projects and propositions were equally various from the south sea trader with the discovery of a new guano island and the latin american with a nascent revolution on his hands on through siberian gold chases and the prospecting of the placer benches of the upper kuskokim to darker things that were mentioned only in whispers and captain tom regretted the temporary indisposition that prevented immediate departure with them and continued to sit and drowse more and more in the big chair it was polly with a camaraderie distasteful to her uncle who got these men aside and broke the news that captain tom would never go out on the shining ways again but not all of them came with projects many made love calls on their leader of old and unforgettable days and frederick sometimes was a witness to their meeting and he marvelled anew at the mysterious charm in his brother that drew all men to him by the turtles of tasman cried one when i heard you was in california captain tom i just had to come and shake hands i reckon you ain't forgot tasman eh nor the scrap at thursday island say old tasman was killed by his niggers only last year up german new guinea way remember his cook boy nagani nagani he was the ringleader tasman swore by him but nagani nagani hatcheted him just the same shake hands with captain carlson fred was tom's introduction of his brother to another visitor he pulled me out of a tight place on the west coast once I'd have cashed in, Carlson, if you hadn't happened along. Captain Carlson was a giant hulk of a man, with gimlet eyes of palest blue, a slash-scarred mouth that a blazing red beard could not quite hide, and a grip in his hand that made Frederick squirm. A few minutes later, Tom had his brother aside. Say, Fred, do you think it will bother to advance me a thousand? Of course. Frederick answered splendidly. You know half of that I have is yours, Tom. And when Captain Carlson departed, Frederick was morally certain that the thousand dollars departed with him. Small wonder 
Tom had made a failure of life, and come home to die. Frederick sat at his own orderly desk, taking stock of the difference between him and his brother. Yes, and if it hadn't been for him, there would have been no home for Tom to die in. Frederick cast back for solace through their joint history. It was he who had always been the mainstay, the dependable one. Tom had laughed and rollicked, played hooky from school, disobeyed Isaac's commandments. To the mountains, or the sea, or in hot water with the neighbors and the town authorities, it was all the same. He was everywhere, save where the dull plot of work obtained, and work was work in those backwoods days, and he, Frederick, had done the work. Early and late, and all days, he had been at it. He remembered the season when Isaac's wide plans had taken one of their smashes, when food had been scarce on the table of a man who owned a hundred thousand acres, when there had been no money to hire harvesters for the hay, and when Isaac would not let go his grip on a single one of his acres. He, Frederick, had pitched the hay, while Isaac mowed and raked. Tom had lain in bed and run up a doctor bill with a broken leg, gained by falling off the ridgepole of the barn, which place was the last in the world to which anyone would expect him to go to pitch hay. About the only work Tom had ever done, it seemed to him, was to fetch in venison and bear oil, to break colts, and to raise a den in the valley pastures and wooded canyons with his bear hounds. Tom was the elder, yet when Isaac died, the estate, with all its vast possibilities, would have gone to ruin, had not he, Frederick, buckled down to it and put the burden on his back work. He remembered the enlargement of the town water system, how he had maneuvered and financed, persuaded small loans at ruinous interest, and laid pipe and made joints by lantern light while the workmen slept, and then been up ahead of them, and to outline and direct and rack his brains over the raising of the next weekend wages. For he had carried on old Isaac's policy. He would not let go. The future would vindicate. And Tom, with a bigger pack of bear dogs ranging the mountains and sleeping out a week at a time, Frederick remembered the final conference in the kitchen. Tom and he and Eliza Travers, who still cooked and baked and washed dishes on an estate that carried a hundred and eighty thousand dollars in mortgages. Don't divide, Eliza Travers had pleaded resting her soap-flecked, parboiled arms. Isaac was right. It will be worth millions. The country is opening up. We must all pull together. I don't want the estate, Tom cried. Let Frederick have it. What I want... He never completed the sentence, but all the vision of the world burned in his eyes. I can't wait, he went on. You can have the millions when they come. In the meantime, let me have ten thousand. I'll sign off quitclaim to everything, and give me the old schooner, and some day I'll be back with a pot of money to help you out. Frederick could see himself in that far past day, throwing up his arms in horror and crying, 
Ten thousand! When I'm strained to the breaking point to raise this quarter's interest? There's a block of land next to the courthouse, Tom had urged. I know the bank has a standing offer for ten thousand. But it will be worth a hundred thousand in ten years, Frederick had objected. Call it so. Say I quit claim everything for a hundred thousand. Sell it for ten and let me have it. It's all I want. And I want it now. You can have the rest. And Tom had had his will. As usual, the block had been mortgaged instead of sold and sailed away in the old schooner the benediction of the town upon his head for he had carried away in his crew half the riffraff of the beach the bones of the schooner had been left on the coast of java that had been when eliza travers was being operated on for her eyes and frederick had kept it from her until indubitable proof came that tom was still alive Frederick went over to his files and drew out a drawer labeled Thomas Travers. In it were packets, methodically arranged. He went over the letters. They were from everywhere. China, Rangoon, Australia, South Africa, the Gold Coast, Patagonia, Armenia, Alaska. Briefly and infrequently written, they epitomized the wanderer's life frederick ran over in his mind a few of the glimpsed highlights of tom's career he had fought in some sort of foreign troubles in armenia he had been an officer in the chinese army and it was a certainty that the trade he later drove in the china seas was illicit he had been caught running arms into cuba it seemed he had always been running something somewhere that it ought not to have been run and he had never outgrown it. One letter, on crinkly tissue paper, showed that as late as the Japanese-Russian War, he had been caught running coal into Port Arthur, and been taken to the prize court at Sasbo, where his steamer was confiscated and he remained a prisoner until the end of the war. Frederick smiled as he read a paragraph. How do you prosper? Let me know any time a few thousands will help you. He looked at the date, April 18, 1883, and opened another packet. May 5, 1883, was the dated sheet he drew out. Five thousand will put me on my feet again, if you can, and love me. Send it along pronto. That's Spanish for rush. He glanced again at the two dates. It was evident that somewhere between April 18th and May 5th, Tom had come a cropper. With a smile, half bitter, Frederick skimmed on through the correspondence. There's a wreck on Midway Island, a fortune in it, salvage, you know. Auction in two days. Cable me four thousand. The last he examined ran. A deal I can swing with a little cash. It's big, I tell you. It's so big I don't dare tell you. He remembered that deal, a Latin American revolution. He had sent the cash and Tom had swung it, and himself as well, into a prison cell and a death sentence. Tom had meant well, there was no denying that, and he had always religiously forwarded his IOUs. Frederick musingly weighed the packet of them in his hand, as though to determine if any relation existed 
between the weight of paper and the sums of money represented on it. He put the drawer back in the cabinet and passed out. Glancing in at the big chair, he saw Polly just tiptoeing from the room. Tom's head lay back, and his breathing was softly heavy, the sickness pronouncedly apparent on his relaxed face. End of Part 4